right. Well, thank you, Terry and Donna. Hope that really was your prayer, that you would like to walk closer uh, with Jesus, with your Lord. That's you know, so much of, of what our time together um, is designed to encourage, is to see you walking closer uh, with Jesus, knowing him better, and then having his life shine out in yours. And uh, uh, if we walk through the Gospel of John, it, uh, of course, is helping us to see up close uh, Jesus and who he is and and why he came and what it was he did while he was here on this earth. And uh, we find ourselves now in John chapter 8. And uh, I was going to say in the middle of it, but it's actually quite a long chapter, so we're not really close to the middle quite yet. Uh, we'll be in chapter 8 for a while. Uh, but the last time we were in John, uh, we really hit a, a very critical point that's going to uh, make a difference in all of the rest of uh, the chapter, because uh, Jesus' statement in chapter 12 is what is the one, one verse we looked at. Uh, it's been three weeks ago now, and many of you weren't here because we had a big snowstorm. Uh, so actually, I, I would urge you to really go back to verse 12, and, and uh, you know, I, I'm not going to promote my sermons, but it might be helpful to get a CD of that sermon from chapter 8, verse 12, or go on to the podcast, uh, either on our website or one of the podcast suppliers, and listen to that sermon, not because the preacher was all that great, but because the truths are amazing. Um, and they will help you as we move forward into chapter 8 to understand, well, what in the world is this back and forth between uh, Jesus and the Jewish leaders all about? What is it that made uh, them so feeling like they needed to, to attack him, and, and what is it he's defending as he walks through the rest of this pretty long chapter? Uh, so you can go back and, and uh, listen through, because uh, just in brief, uh, well, verse 12, it says, Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And you might remember uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Uh, that, that time it was a, a harvest celebration, but it was called the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths because they were commanded by God to have this, this feast, this time of celebration. And for a week they built uh, little shelters made out of branches to remind them of what it was like to follow Moses, to follow God, actually, really, through the wilderness on their way out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. So every year they were to spend this week of, of both remembering and celebrating God's provision for them. And you might remember it was during that feast where Jesus welcomed them to come to him, the living water. And that connected in with one of the ceremonies from that week at the temple where they would go and, and, and get a, a jug of water uh, from the pool of, pool of Siloam and take it into the, the temple and pour it out in worship before God. And it would have been at that point where Jesus said, Come to me and drink, all of you who are thirsty. Well, this uh, particular statement of Jesus, one of his I am statements, his declaration that he is Yahweh, which means I am. 
when he said, I am the light of the world, it connected with part one of the ceremonies in the Feast of Tabernacles. When they would light up the whole outer court of the temple, the, the court of the women, with 75-foot-high lamps. And they said that that light would shine out all over Jerusalem. And they would dance. The old, the old scholars would dance into the night praising God. And it was just an amazing time of praising the God who is light, as the Psalms say. The Lord, or Yahweh, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I trust? Of whom shall I be afraid? And it was a reminder to them of the light, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night that would lead them when they moved, that would protect them. It stood between them and the Egyptians. But everywhere they went, they followed. They followed the light. It also reminded them that during the Feast of Booths, King Solomon dedicated the temple that he built to the Lord. It was during that feast, during that dedication, that then the Shekinah glory of God came and settled over the temple or on the temple. And they remembered, this is the God we worship who is light. And maybe it was the next morning. The, flat, the, the lamps had been put out. But Jesus said to them, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. It was a bold statement. It was an amazing statement. And as we move forward in this section, the Jewish leaders have taken great offense at this statement. So let me first read uh, this section, verses 13 through 20. Let's find out what was so offensive about this statement. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it. But I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And you can see that the Jewish leaders or on the attack here, right? Well, what is it that was so offensive about him saying, I am the light of the world? I've talked about this in, my, in the previous message, but also you probably saw just in, in, in all that that statement was about and, and that whole practice of the, the ceremony of lighting up the temple, 
really Jesus is saying here, first of all, I am the light of the world. Taking that name of God for himself. He's already said, I am the bread of life. And he takes that name for God, that covenant name for God, and he claims it. He is saying that he is God, that he is equal with God, which is why they wanted to kill him back in starting back in chapter 5 to begin with. But he's claiming these things that that whole, whole ceremony said about God for himself. I am the light that led you through the wilderness. I am that blinding glory that came to the temple when Solomon dedicated that. I am the one that you have to come for, for understanding. He was making a huge statement when he did that. But not only that, he said to them, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Take the opposite of that. He who does not follow me will walk in the darkness and will not have the light of life. He's saying you have to have an ongoing, exclusive discipleship relationship with me. Jesus is, he says, not a light. He says, I am the light of the world. So following him, and it's a present tense verb, you might guess, but it's an, you have to do it in an ongoing way. It's the only way to have the light of life, he says. All the various rabbis wanted to be the teacher of Israel. Remember, Jesus used that term for Nicodemus. When he came to him by night, he said, you are the teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? You don't understand these things? Uh, there's a, ma- a teacher, a rabbi named Gamaliel. And you might remember from the book of Acts, we're told that the apostle Paul sat at Gamaliel's feet and learned. He was one of only seven rabbis who actually had the title Rabban, which means our master, our great one. These various rabbis, they wanted to be the teacher who stood out. And they all had their followers that followed them and learned all of the things that they had to say, would memorize the things that they had to say. In this statement, Jesus singles himself out as the only one who truly has the light. And you might remember how John started this, this book out. John chapter 1, verse 4, describing Jesus. <clears throat> of course, before 4, he talks about him being the Word. He talks about him being with God in the beginning and being God. But verse 4, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus claiming to be the light says that he is God and says that he is the only one that you can truly follow to have that light that gives you real life. Doesn't mean you can't have other teachers, but here's application that even comes down to us. All discipleship, The discipleship that we do, the discipleship we'll talk about on Saturday, should always be discipleship that doesn't draw people to ourselves, 
but it's discipleship that helps make them followers of Jesus. That's always our job. He is the light, and we're to bring people to him and the life that is in him. If we're just bringing people to us, we don't have that in ourselves to offer, do we? We only have the light that is his that we can then shine out and say, go to the source, go to Jesus, and know him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 uh, shows you Paul's approach to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He makes a pretty bold statement there. There he says, be imitators of me. Oh, wow, that's quite a thing to say. But notice how he qualifies it. Just as I also am of Christ. In other words, you can copy me as long as you can see what I'm doing is just the things that Jesus is doing. As long as the things that I'm doing point you to being an imitator of Christ, of Jesus. Jesus saying, I am the light, that, that tells us in our discipleship, that should have told these rabbis in, in their discipleship, that they should all be saying, oh, you're the one and turned all of their disciples, like John the Baptist did, and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Jesus was shaking up their system, turning it upside down, totally scrambling it and saying, all that needs to be reoriented to me. So what are they going to do about that? Well, notice verse 13 the brilliant argument they have against Jesus being the light of the world. You're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. But did you notice they don't even talk about the fact that Jesus says he is the light of the world or its implications? They simply tried to avoid the issue altogether by attacking whether his self-testimony was valid or not. And watch out for this, this logical fallacy, by the way, when you, you give truth to other people, especially when you give the gospel. You'll find them wanting, wanting to not really deal with the real issue, their own sinfulness and their need for a Savior. They'll want to distract. They'll want to maybe tear you down. They'll want to turn, turn things a different direction. Keep it focused on Jesus. Because a lot of times people want to avoid the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He's working on them. And you're telling them the truth, and they're like, I don't want to go there. Let's talk about how bad your, your ability to talk is. Let's talk about how you're not trustworthy. Let's talk about you or something else, but let's not talk about Jesus. It's interesting how that, that attack, you know, fits in so well with what, what was talked about back in chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Back there it says, This is the judgment, the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. 
those very words are now being played out in Jesus' interaction with, with these religious leaders. They don't want the light shown on their actions and their hearts and their motivations. And so they want to shut the light down. They want to be away from the light. They want to get rid of the light. They want to extinguish the light. But Jesus is the light who won't be extinguished. So they point out, well, you can't just witness about yourself. You need two witnesses, and you can't be one of those witnesses. And the law, the Old Testament law, did require two witnesses in order for someone to be put to death for their crime. Um, I'm not going to turn there right now, but you can find those at Numbers 3530 or Deuteronomy 17.6. Um, and that was a safeguard, right, for human beings making judgments so that you didn't just have one witness, but you had to verify that witness by, with at least one other person. Uh, then <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and turn to, to Deuteronomy 19.15, where it, it really kind of broadens out that principle. Uh, throughout the law, it says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And then it goes on to deal with malicious witnesses. And so the, there's, there's a more general principle when somebody is accused of something uh, that you shouldn't just believe one person, but you should back that up in dealing with legal matters in the Mosaic law. Well, the, the uh, Jewish leaders in their tradition had basically broadened that out to be about anything, any kind of issue. So here Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. They said, oh, that's what you say. Where are your witnesses? How can you just make that statement? You can't witness about yourself. That's not valid. So now they try, they're trying to undermine his this critical truth with that tradition, not necessarily the Scripture, but how they've taken the Scripture and its principles and, and, and applied it in other areas. They don't have an argument against Jesus' statement. And so they're using their tradition to try to invalidate what Jesus has said. So then we, as we move along, then in John, Jesus speaks for himself and validates his testimony. And it's interesting that Jesus had actually already covered this issue back in chapter 5. And we don't have time to go back and redo that, that whole section again. But John, John 5, 31 through 47, after he'd healed the man who couldn't walk, who was at the, the pool of Bethesda, <clears throat> Jesus anticipated their objection to his own testimony about himself, citing how not having more than one one. Witness makes it hard to believe him. He understands the difficulty of believing him, uh, who they see as here's just this man saying these things about himself and saying that, it, that he could do this on the, on the Sabbath day. But in that section, he, he then cited other witnesses on his behalf. He took them to John the Baptist and his testimony about him. He took them to the works that he did, which were given to him by his father. Those validated him about who he is. He spoke about the Father himself who witnessed about him. And then he talked about the scriptures, especially the scriptures written by Moses, which the Jewish leaders revered so greatly. And they said, you really, you really like to listen to Moses? Well, go and look at what he says about me. 
Moses spoke about me. He is a witness to me. Believe him. So here in this case, verse 14, as Jesus answers, he said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. Oh, so he's contradicting their assertion. He's saying, I am a valid witness, even when I speak about myself. Why? For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. Jesus points out that he has complete knowledge of his origins. Remember back in chapter 6 where he said he came from? I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Uh, They were wrapped up in the fact that Jesus, a long-term resident of Nazareth, up in that north country, you know, where all those kind of Jewish people were, that's where Jesus was from. They just made the assumption then that he had been born in Nazareth, and that was all there was to his origins. They're thinking he wasn't born in Bethlehem. Scriptures say Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus is from Nazareth. They're all wrapped up in the physical aspects of Jesus' coming, which, of course, Jesus fit the bill for every prophecy. And, in fact, they could have discovered Jesus' actual birthplace with just a little bit of investigation. They could have talked to his mother. They could have talked to other people who were witnesses and and knew about it. They could have gone to Bethlehem and asked around, because certainly... There would have been some who would have remembered that strange happening. But that wasn't what they were interested in. And it really wasn't the part that truly mattered. Because Jesus' origin, where he came from, that really mattered was that he came down from heaven as God the Son to become a human being, to to live here among us. And Jesus is the only human witness who could give valid testimony. He's the only one who had first-hand knowledge of his origins as a human being. And being the only human who knows doesn't mean that what he says isn't true. In fact, there's, there's a lot of things that God knows that we don't, right? And he is then the only source that we can get that information from. And Jesus also points out their own ignorance. They don't know where he's from. They don't know where he's going. Jesus knows perfectly where he came from, and he knows the Father's plan for him and where it's going to take him. Now, Jesus pointing out their ignorance, a true, authentic seeker of truth might have been humbled by that and said, you're right, we really don't know. Would you tell us? But that's not what these people were. They weren't authentic seekers of truth. They were wanting to hold on to their own power. They were wanting to hold on to the things that they thought should be theirs, and they saw Jesus as a threat. But Jesus continues, verse 15, some more humbling words. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. So his first uh, counter accusation is that their judgments, the, the way they are distinguishing what is true is only material. These self appointed judges could only gather information from their five senses, right? Their evidence was entirely material as far as the way they made those judgments. And what did they see? Well, they looked at Jesus, they saw his physical attributes, 
They saw his apparent lineage. They saw his assumed place of birth in Nazareth. They saw his lack of resources. He had nothing. They saw a lack of formal training. And they had decided, this man isn't worth listening to. Uh, They decided, how can he witness about himself? He's got nothing to back him up. But the, the evidence that they really needed was outside of that realm of understanding. Also, they were... They were influenced by their own fleshly desires. They judged according to the flesh, their, their own flesh. The own, own things that they wanted, like the desire for human praise and for power. That was like this, this human filter that they used in making all of their assessments, right? And we're kind of that way too. Our, 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 our identifying sins, the things that we really want and we're really willing to sin to get them, the color everything we see, right? Well, how is that going to keep me from getting what it is I want? How is that answer from someone going to impact the direction I want to go? And so they had that, that selfish filter that we have to be working at all the time, right? Well, am I really seeing things according to God's, God's way, or am I seeing them according to my own? And here we can go back to John chapter 3 again, because he said, to them, I'm not making any judgments. Oh, well, why, why wasn't he here to make judgments? John chapter 3, just before where we were a moment ago, verses 17 and 18, it says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, our, our condition before Jesus came for everyone was, you're condemned, you're judged. God's already made the judgment for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? As Paul will later say. The wages of sin is death. It was our condition that we were all condemned. Jesus didn't have to come and establish that. The law had been doing that for centuries, showing here's here's. God's way, you're not, you're not keeping it. None of you are keeping, keeping it. There's none righteous. No, not one. Jesus didn't have to come and make that distinction, that judgment. It had already been made very clear. He had come to save. And you know what? He really loves these people he's talking to. He's helping them see. Judgment's already here, guys. I've come to help you get out of judgment. But judging according to things that don't really matter. Which should make us say, well, how do I make judgments? How do I discern things around me? The thing is, God isn't holding out on us. Uh, he loves to give us wisdom. That's what James says in cha- James chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, when, when we believe in Jesus and come to him, He likes for us to have the ability to make good judgments. James 1.5 says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all, how? Generously, right? And without reproach, and it 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 will be given to him. 
See, we, we shouldn't be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these religious leaders, only judging by what we can see, uh, what our, our sinful hearts perceive, when we're not sure how to discern what's right and wrong or where to go or what to do. He says, ask me. I love to give and I'm not stingy. I like to help you know what's right and wrong and, and what, what to do. I love to do that. You know, we have, have to make judgments about things all the time in our lives. And sometimes it's just knowing how to act, who to trust, or, or how to use our resources wisely the way God wants us to. And there's no area of life that the Bible doesn't speak to. So there's a good place to start, right? Know, you, know the Word of God. And so many of those things will just will, will become clear because you're like, oh yeah, that's what God says about this, this area. But our lack of, of knowledge and understanding of situation still often leaves us uncertain because for one thing, we often don't know God's Word enough, but also we just, we're just human beings. And so God tells us that when we have the good sense to know how little wisdom and understanding we have, we're to ask Him. He will provide what is needed. Sometimes it's just the, the wisdom to wait and say, okay, it's not time to, to go down that road yet. Sometimes it means get up and go do what you know you're supposed to do. Stop sitting and waiting, right? But God says he loves to help us see and know and understand we should ask. Then Jesus goes on and says, but even if I do judge... My judgment is true, and I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. How is it that Jesus is his valid judge? He's already said that he is completely united with the Father in his work. That was back in chapter 5, verse 17. He said, the Father works until now, and so I work. I'm right with the Father in all of the things he does, right? Now he says that he is a valid judge because he has a complete unity with the judgments of the Father. Which again is a strong statement of the deity of Jesus. I mean, who can be right, be right with the Father in all of their judgments but someone else who is also God, right? But the Jewish leaders are not yet connecting all those dots. But by the time you get to chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus says, very clearly, I and the Father are one. They get it, right? Of course, their reaction there is wrong. They pick up stones to kill him. But Jesus is here telling them, whatever is true of the Father, I'm right there with him. In the middle of it, with him. We're in total agreement in all that we think and say and do. And if there's anything in his Humanity, remember he took on human flesh, he laid aside his prerogatives as God. Any, any way that he was lacking there was made up for, the, for by the fact that the Holy Spirit came on him. And he relied on the Holy Spirit to fill in any, anything that in his humanity he had, he had to gain, you could say, from the Father during that time on earth. But then Jesus takes it in verses 17 and 18 and says, Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take on your assumption that there's a need here for other witnesses. He says, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. He says, okay, you want two witnesses? Verse 18, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me 
testifies about me. There's your two witnesses. Notice he starts off by saying, oh, in your law. And so Jesus is either here talking about their traditions and what their traditions have done to the law that God had given to them. Because remember, the law of Moses is really the law given to Moses by God, right? But he's saying, you've kind of turned it into something else. You've added your own interpretations. You've added on your own layers of tradition to it. And so he doesn't call it my law or my father's law. He says, according to your law. In other words, they've either messed it up with their traditions or there's a sense when she's sarcastically saying, you've taken what is not yours and you're using it incorrectly. It says, in your law, it's written that the testimony of two men is true. And so is the law Hmm, what's needed here? Well, he says, I'll give you two witnesses. But notice also, first off, before he goes there, verse 18, how does he start out? I am. And the word he is just added by the translator. Basically, he says, I am the one who testifies about myself. So again, I believe he, he, he doesn't, use words willy-nilly or randomly. He wants to throw that in there. I can speak about myself because, in fact, I am God. I am Yahweh. And the thing is that God is truly the only one who can testify about himself with original knowledge. It's only because God reveals truth about himself that we know him. There's evidence all around us of God, but to truly know who He is and, and what He requires, requires revelation. God has to tell us about Himself, and even what He's told us about Himself is just a, a minute, tiny little bit. Though for us, it's massive. I go back to Deuteronomy again, 29, Deuteronomy 29, 29. And this speaks about the need for revelation. There it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. In other words, there are things about God you will never know unless he tells you. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So Moses is writing down here, look at how much God has revealed to us about himself. How blessed a people we are. Because otherwise, we had no way of knowing these things about God. Oh, we could, we could see the second-hand evidence around us. We look at creation. Wow. We could infer things from it. But God has revealed directly to us about himself, and his witness is absolutely true. So Jesus, as God the Son, is here saying, He's not only able to witness accurately about himself, but only the members of the Trinity can really do that, give original information about the Godhead. So Jesus is saying, I am a valid witness in myself. But then he also says that the Father testifies about me. There's my second witness. And, Jesus, and the Father testified about him through Jesus' miraculous works. The 
because they were given to him by the Father to do. He healed the sick, he cast out demons, he raised the dead, he gave sight to the blind. These are all things that the Creator does. And the Father gave him those as a witness. The Old Testament prophecies are a clear testimony about who Jesus is. That is the witness that the Father gave him. But even more than that, or maybe not more than that, in addition to that, on top of all that, the Father even spoke audibly at Jesus' baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. It doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? Now these men certainly weren't at the Transfiguration. They may not have been on hand for his baptism, although some of them may have been, but they certainly could have sought out witnesses. The Father had given clear testimony about who Jesus is, that he is his very son. Well, what are they going to do with that? How are they going to respond? Verse 19, so they were saying to him, where is your father? Understand, they're still thinking on a, on a physical level, right? A fleshly level. Maybe they're talking about Joseph. You know, where, where's this father you're talking about? Does he live in Nazareth? They're really not ready to hear the truth. And Jesus isn't going to do things according to their plan. Notice he said, Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And here's a hard point that Jesus is going to continue to press throughout this section. These men claim to be the children of God. They claim to know who God is. But it's obvious they don't even know the God they claim to be experts on. They don't even know the God who wrote the scriptures that they spend all their time studying. Understand, just because someone is religious doesn't mean they know God. It requires, yes, a knowledge of his word, but that leads to a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Please don't assume someone, just because they're very religious or look very holy, that they know God. They have to have that relationship with him based on his word. These people aren't even on the same wavelength about who the Father is. They don't demonstrate his heart or his love for people. That's one of the evidences. They were more concerned about the breaking of the Sabbath than about the man that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. They weren't saying, look at how good God is that he can give this man the ability to walk again after all those decades of not being able to walk. No, they're like, who did this? Who did this? They're in big trouble. Obviously, they don't know Jesus' father. And they seem totally unfamiliar with God's plan. They don't even recognize the Father's unique Son when He shows up on the scene. If they knew His Father, they would have recognized His Son. In fact, what do they want? They want to kill Him. They want to kill the unique Son of God. Clearly, they don't know Him. John wraps up this section by saying, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one seized him, 
because his hour had not yet come. God's plan prevails. Even though Jesus is speaking these words that were, I'm sure, infuriating these Jewish leaders, nobody arrested him, even though it's become clear they want to kill him. They've sent people after him to arrest him before this. And he's right in the very temple complex at the center of, the, of, all, of all of this temple area. Pretty hard to get out of if they wanted to trap him, you would think. But it's not his time to die. It's not his time for them to be able to take him. And John doesn't explain how. But they didn't arrest him. Maybe they didn't even try because the Father kept them from it. Maybe they tried and he just walked through the crowd like he did on other occasions. But it's not time and, and his father truly is the one who is sovereignly in control. Well, this section continues a great debate between Jesus and his religious leaders. It's going to extend through this whole chapter. Uh, finally got to culminate you know, in another one of Jesus' great I am statements. But John's included it. Why, why, why do we listen in on this argument Jesus has with these religious leaders? Well, he's included it because of the reason he wrote the book. Remember back when we started and different points, we've said, well, why is this here? Go back to John 20, 30 and 31. <clears throat> Remember his purpose statement. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, and I think it means not just the miracles, but all that he did, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We get these lessons that Jesus lovingly gave to the Jewish leaders, given to us. We, John brings us along and says, hey, listen into this conversation that Jesus had with these people who hated him. Look at how again and again he presents the truth of who he is. Look how again and again he gives them the opportunity to believe in him. And you, make sure that you are believing in him. Make sure that you have life through his name, knowing who he is truly. Use it to know if you already have come into a relationship with him. Use it to know your Savior even better. And understand, you walk with, you serve God in flesh. He came, lived, died, rose again for you. And he's not just any man. A God who came and walked around this earth like you do, but loving you so much that he keeps, kept on telling you until you believed. But even loving the people who wanted to take his life enough to keep pointing out who he was and why he was here. <clears throat> Use these conversations, this conversation. It's a long one. We'll be in it for a while. But to deepen your understanding of him. But if you haven't entrusted yourself to him, do that right now. Don't wait any longer. Right now, talk to Jesus and say, I, I am a sinner. Please, I need your forgiveness of sins. I need your gift of eternal life, and I need to be able to walk with you from this point forward, all through this life and into eternity. Don't let any more moments go by without doing that right where you're at. 
immediately. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us to have uh, preserved these words of Jesus, but to have sent him, and to, that, that you and he and the Spirit uh, laid out this perfect plan and, and then carried it out in every detail, just as you, have, you had prepared it, so that we could have real life. Father, as we uh, seek that closer walk with you, closer walk with Jesus our Savior by means of your Spirit, that you would open up our our hearts and eyes and and lives and motives to be able to to more and more line up exactly with who you are and what Jesus speaks of here. Uh, Use this in our daily interactions with others in this week ahead and, and for the rest of our lives for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name.